Cool's out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. We got Todd Lindsley in the house tonight. How are you doing, man? I'm well. How are you doing, Adam? Doing good. Really good. Uh, what you been up right to? Right on. Uh, well, I got in a car accident a couple of weeks ago. That's right. You and mentioned And I got that. a concussion. Oh, it's, it's, it's nasty. However, I'm getting like three massages a week. Nice. It's 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 kind of yeah. It's kind of king king kind of behavior. Or uh, you get the king treatment going for you. Yeah, I'm getting the king treatment. Nice. Yeah, no, it's it's very nice. I mean, you know, I had to I had to crash my car in order to do it, but it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but this uh, let's let's hope their lawyers don't uh, get a hold of this recording. <laughs> right, you know, because yeah, I'm suing them. <laughs> uh, you're rear-ended uh, yeah right? but you know yeah i got rear-ended i was sitting at a parking or i was put sitting in a parking lot i was sitting at a, at a stop sign or a stoplight and uh and yeah it just plowed right into me and yeah i mean he could not look up from his phone long enough for me to take a picture of the accident with him in it <laughs> uh I, it was ridiculous but anyway uh, whatever so how's your head it doing happened. you got like a, you got like a minor concussion right yeah, I got a concussion, so I'm like, I, I, it's funny because I I will say things and then two minutes later I'm saying the same thing all over again and my wife's going nuts. She's like, well, you know, you just said that. I was like, no, I didn't. So what's different? So yeah, I got a little, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's yeah, it's a little weird. It's a little yeah. weird because you do have those short-term memory things, but um, I, I, it's funny because I... I will say things, and then two minutes later, I'm saying the same thing all over again. And yeah, so let's do a podcast. <laughs> let's do a podcast. So uh, how about the how about the writing? How's the writing going this week? Oh, the writing. Um, well, I, I'm kind of wanting to set back to zero. I, I I really do believe in torching things if they're just not going the right direction. Really? And, so that you're yeah, working on a tweener like, series? Is that no? It's still there, like it's still the idea of a young, you know, um, a young, like OC that takes place in a junior high, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't really going anywhere, and so I'm taking it back. You know, I I wrote some scenes, and I kind of tried to figure out, you know, what kind of a dynamic we're gonna have. And and I'm actually going to. Uh, it's funny because I. I will say things, and then two minutes later, I'm saying the same thing all over again. And you know, I've I've been talking to you, mm-hmm. and and we're we're gonna have a little bit of a consultation and see what we can kind of play with and come up with. Um, I think it's really important not to live in a vacuum. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean that's one yeah. thing I want to talk for the audience real quick. Like, definitely build up your brain trust. Find the people. Yeah. That are creative. That like like Todd is my go-to guy. I don't write anything without pitching it to him first. Every time I'm in a rut or I, I hit some sort of block or a wall, I'll give Todd a call and just pitch it to him, and we'll go over it or we'll just hammer it away. Todd's like my go-to guy for like really peeling peeling it apart and getting a second voice. Like um, it, it's so easy to get so caught up in your own head, uh, and then you don't know why you're stuck there. Right. Well, hey, that was really nice of you to say. Um, you're you are also my beard inspiration, so you know <laughs> I had to get get it all colored right here. I get the Adam Skelter is what I call it. I call it Adam Skelter. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, you're killing uh, it, man. You're uh, much better. I actually got a little thanks. bit of a trim today. 
I went to looks good. My my barber. I've been shaving my head all year. I'll just shave it and then let it grow for you know do do the quarantine uh, bush beard. Right. And then uh, finally, I found out my favorite <laughs> barbers are open, so I went to them oh. their place. It's it's great. They give you a bourbon or a beer or something while they're like giving Ooh. you the towel treatment. It's fantastic. I love it. Nice. Talk about the king treatment. Nice. The king treatment. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Is it? it is that a new film we're going to be working on? The King Treatment? The King Treatment. <laughs> I don't think there's... There's not a it's, lot to it's that, It's the King's actually. Speech too. The King Treatment. I, I, it's funny because I, I will say things and then two minutes later I'm saying the same thing all over again. And You know, it would be funny. Uh, the, the King's Treatment, uh, it, it's the king, but he's really annoying to all his friends trying to get him to read something about it, the next screenplay he's working on. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. like, it's like, oh, did you read The King's Treatment? Neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> uh, uh, that's good. Cool. Well, right um, I um, I've been working on because uh, I never bring this up, and I'm very shy about it. But I'm working on a novel mm. that I'm wrapping up called Intervention. Uh, I don't believe I've talked about it on the show at all, so I thought it would be a good time yeah. to finally bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I have been able to read some of it, and I am very impressed. It was very quickly. <laughs> Thanks, I man. It quite uh, Todd, actually, you read the screenplay. You read the screenplay before I adapted it to the novel. And that's, oh, I mean, yeah, the and that's a perfect example. I had a huge issue with the final act, with the fourth act. And I was really, mm-hmm. I was just trying to hammer through. It, it, it has this really, um, uh, a reversal that happens at the end. And it's kind of a, uh, mm-hmm. it's a very complex, playful thing that the whole novel is building up toward. And I just kept on having this snag. Right. And so I called you up to um, just work through it and we literally just did a diagram and tried to figure out exactly like I'm like okay I know she wants to do this and would she do this would the main character do this Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I'm being a little vague because I don't want to give away the ending but within what about an hour and a half or so we had the whole thing worked out mapped out and then I was able to just run back to my computer and write the whole thing write the whole uh, the rest of the script that night the thing about this story is that it's so much fun. Thanks, man. I mean, I am not a. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm I'm literate. <laughs> uh, obviously, I read, but but it takes uh, quite a bit for me to uh, to read somebody else's work uh, for free, and uh, and it's, it's. Do you a want to talk about that at all? Like and, your uh, the fact that you have dyslexia, or do you want me to cut that out? I don't mind at all. Because there are a lot of people I, that, that um, like have like a, a dyslexia and they think that they can't be writers or they think they have a difficult time with it. And you're a perfect example of like, yeah. you're one of the most creative, intelligent, like my go-to guy to talk story with. And and you also have a bit of a, um, would you call it a learning disability? Yeah, it, it is definitely a learning yeah. disability. It's something... It's a, a learning deficit is what a, a lot of people say. Is like, you'll have this um, sky-high IQ. <laughs> um, and modesty. You'll you know, just modesty perf- that just explodes and, modest- and fills up the room. Sky-high <laughs> humility. Just humility as big as a castle. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, what will happen is is basically you'll have this this... I mean, literally, they do the IQ, and then they figure out at what level um, you're performing, mm-hmm. at level at which you're performing, and 
uh, a lot of times it, it's called a learning deficit. It's something that to a certain degree with dyslexia, you can kind of train yourself. Um, it's basically like reading a foreign language every time. Wow. Like every time you read. But, it, you know, you get used to it after a okay. while. And, and you kind of start start um, uh, just coping and, and figuring out how to make it work for yeah. you. And the thing, the thing is, is that, I mean, my big, the thing that got me through a lot of it as a young boy, I mean, the truth is I wasn't very literate until I was about 11 or 12 years old. Hmm. And it's just because I would go, my mom would buy me skateboarding magazines, surfing mm -hmm. magazines, and I would read them because I was interested in what they had to say. And then after that, I read Essie Hinton's That Was Then, This Is Now, and I was just kind of hooked on this kind of, this thing, this, this compilation of paper that gave me feelings, you know? It was like, um, then I went and read uh, The Outsiders and eventually uh, um, the, oh, come on, uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. And those were, those were kind of the first couple of books that I read. And they I was so lucky that I found good books. I mean, Essie Hinton is, is a little bit of popcorn, but I, I wouldn't discount her just because, you know, she was popular at the mm -hmm. time. But she was kind of like the alternative because she wanted to write for boys. And so Essie Hinton was actually technically, she didn't make it clear that she was not male. She actually kind of wrote in this ambiguity calling herself Essie Hinton mm. because she really wanted to kind of appeal to the the male demographic um, I didn't uh, know the that. readers that's interesting and, yeah and so anyway so she um, and then of course as I get into high school I'm introduced to the jazz era and you know Jack Kerouac was really yeah. really important to me still is very very important to me yeah um, and On the Road and uh, Mexico City Blues and Big Sur and all those. So you don't really, you don't feel like um, having dyslexia in any way like impedes you from being a writer. And oh no, like question that. it 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 is a challenge. Mm -hmm. It is a challenge, um, but you work through it. You make you, you know your passion is your passion for a reason. Yeah, and true. Ultimately, you know, I I get I do what I can. I do what I what I have to do in order to make that work for me. So, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I would encourage anybody uh, with dyslexia. Number one, don't hide it. There's no stigma associated with it anymore. Nobody thinks you're a dumb dumb. You may have feelings about it. You may think that, oh well, if they know this, then they know too much about me or something like that. Did you have I any kind everybody. of like uh, embarrassment or uh, shyness about having dyslexia when you were younger? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's something that I just had to figure out. Mm. I mean, and ultimately, people who have dyslexia are very, very intelligent, very intelligent people. And ultimately, what they're doing is they're not performing. For whatever reason, there's a blockage there. We don't know what that is. Mm. So that astronomical, um, like, possibility. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just don't. It's not a intellectual um, disability. It is, it's a learning deficit, and just understanding that alone really helped me a lot. Yeah, it didn't mean I was stupid. 
No, exactly. And the, like oh, a somebody... lot of teachers. I'm sorry. Go ahead. A lot of teachers. It's okay. A lot of teachers, um, when they are uh, teaching you, and and you're not working the way other kids are working, they do. I had a lot of teachers make me feel stupid, mm. um, and I think I had a few that were like telling me I was stupid. But wow. luckily, I had parents who were very, very supportive, and um, they we just worked it through together. My mom figured out how what I wanted to read, and we ended up just being able to. Plus, I was also um, I sang in in different um, capacities as a child and so you had to read as fast as you were singing sometimes mm. and so i would i would learn that um learn how to read while i was singing much faster than i would read um and a lot of times i would be singing things phonetically as a child like as a as a young child like i was six years old when i was in my first boys choir and um when i was singing those songs i would sing them all phonetically because i didn't know how to read so I would like be listening to the kids that were singing and I would just sing what they sang. But I wasn't like enunciating any words because I didn't know what the words were. Um, but anyway, you know, it, it's just kind of one of those things where, you know, like I said, it wasn't until I was about 11 or 12 where I was actually like literate oh, wow. um, that I could actually read. But um, I mean, read well, like with comprehension and the ability to understand yeah. and connect with my own, uh, my own heart, my own brain, you know. But yeah, no, I, um, well, I can personally I, attest, I like I, I read almost everything you work on. Like Todd and I work really closely with a lot of stuff Yeah, and like that you're, you're one of the most creative people I've ever, that's why I always want to bounce something oh, off you nice. because you always help me plus it. You always bring more to it. Um, I, I think you're a creative genius. And, uh, no, so yeah, don't, so nice. don't ever like for those of you at home, if you're dealing with dyslexia or any learning disability, don't ever let that think that'll stop you. Don't begin to think that that'll stop you from uh, from making art and telling stories. Uh, stories are for everybody, Absolutely. everybody, and Absolutely. and just the just Absolutely. the practice of making story makes you a better person and give it fills out the way you look at the world. Um, True. Cool. Well, uh, awesome. Thanks for That's talking cool. about that, Todd. I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out oh, there that have sure. a lot of self doubt, and um, yeah, and and that's that's a good block to take away. All right, let's jump into story bites. Story bites. So, you want to get into story bites? So, this week we're going to be doing story bites, and story bites again is where we just kind of take some principle, some element, uh, often referring to the diagram, the the story kinetics diagram. Hopefully, it helps you with your writing. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the dramatic question. Um, now, mm. if we look at the diagram, the four X structure. Um, the dramatic question is actually just, it's the spine of the concept. Now we talk about it in every single episode. Uh, that's why I wanted to take the time to really, uh, delve into it and make sure it's completely crystal clear what it is. Now, uh, the dramatic question, uh, comes from this idea from, um, Frank Danielle. Now, I think we've talked briefly about Frank Danielle, but can you, mm. can you just tell us a little bit about him real quick, Todd? Because I, I want to make sure that that's, that's clear. That, this is where I got the concept of the, of the dramatic question from. Okay, well, uh, Frank Danielle was a screenwriter slash producer slash professor um, in the Czech Republic 
um, or Czechoslovakia, technically, when he was there. Now, he eventually made it over to the States, taught at Columbia, taught at, uh, at UCLA, and he was, uh, uh, he was actually the uh, mentor, the story mentor to people like uh, David Lynch. Oh, I didn't know and that. And Milos Forman. Yeah, Milos Forman was another one of his kind of well-known uh, mentees, and they were... Uh, yeah, they're they're both students of his. And so, what what is he known for? What's his contribution to uh, story theory? Well, he, he quite a bit actually. But what they start off with is is called the sequence approach. And mm-hmm. so, if you um, if you break a, a screenplay down into eight different sequences, um, it will help you understand the progress of your story. And it will kind of help you run the numbers, helping you understand where you should be at emotionally um, in order to, uh, um, gosh, my brain. (laughs) In order Uh, to to keep the story going. In order to keep the story going. (laughs) I should have kept that answer. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Um, I will say it was years ago that you actually introduced me to Frank Danielle and Paul Gulino and the sequence approach. I hadn't even heard of them before. I was Mm -hmm. into Robert McKee and Sid Fields and uh, David Trottier, which are all also great resources. But I got to say, as soon as I read the sequence approach by Paul Gulino. So Paul Gulino is a student of uh, Frank Danielle. And he, Frank Daniels, yeah, that's and he right. kind of took Frank Daniels' theory and presented it uh, in in the book, the sequence approach, and um, and he's the he's the one that kind of uh, at the very beginning he talks about this kind of idea of like uh, that the purpose of story, the purpose of entertainment is to get your audience to project their attention forward, to guess what's going to come next, and in order to do that, mm-hmm. you need to emotionally engage these characters, care about the stakes. And then you're then you start having kind of like a chess game. It's between the the storyteller and the audience, and uh, the, the the dramatic question is at the core of that uh, entertainment. That that question of like getting the idea to or getting the audience to project their attention forward. Um, and so when and then I'd kind of discovered like looking at my my four act structure that the eight sequences line up perfectly uh, with twenty four mm-hmm. plot points. And at the very end of Act One is right where you would normally um, cross the threshold into Act Two, and that's usually right when they're nailing the dramatic question. They're presenting, they're engaging the dramatic question directly. Okay, so the dramatic question is always phrased. Uh, it's a plot-driven question. Uh, a lot of people think a dramatic question. They want to start going deep. They want to start talking about theme and like you know what is you know like asking big questions like man against earth and man against steel or all right. So uh, so the dramatic question sense, it's know. it's plot specific and plot is simply a character wants something. They have a specific objective, and when you're plotting something out, all you're doing is figuring out how this character solves problems. Um, so, uh, which is why the dramatic question is posed very specifically. It is, it's will the protagonist achieve X? Now, the reason why this is important is the very specific question that is going to be planted in the audience's mind. And the audience, whether they're aware of it or not, is going to be asking this question, will they or won't they? And that's where dramatic tension comes from. So tension comes from us trying to guess what's gonna happen next and then seeing how it resolves itself. 
Um, and every single sequence, that's what's so great about the sequence approach, is that you kind of imply with these mini plots, these mini tactics, um, as they culminate at the end of a sequence. And the dramatic question is the big concept that ties all of those sequences together into the climax. Um, so what I thought we would do is just look at a couple different movies and see if we can identify oh. the dramatic question in each of these movies. Does that sound good? No, oh, I like that a lot. Cool. Okay. That'll be fun. Let's start with No Country for Old Men. What is the dramatic question for No Country for Old Men? Will the country ever become old men? <laughs> no. Okay, so um we're gonna we're gonna identify the protagonist who is Good. Uh Schmoopy. what's his name? Um Darcy, Devin. Well, well, it's like a really well. See, that's what's interesting what is it's 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 kind of a there's Llewellyn Moss, who is Josh Brolin. Llewellyn, that's who I'm trying. Yeah, there you and go. And then we Josh have Brolin. Tommy Lee Jones's character, uh, who is Ed Tom mm -hmm. Bell. And then we have yeah. uh, Anton Chigurh, played by ha uh, Javier Bardem. <laughs> Javier Bardem, <laughs> the Spaniard. Ooh, Javier. Okay, so uh, which one of those is the protagonist? Bardem. <laughs> Uh, I'd say the protagonist is Llewellyn. Uh, yeah, in the traditional structure, I'm comfortable saying and that. that's that's you know this is Cormac McCarthy. It's a complex structure. It's brilliant, and then it's the Coen Brothers adapting it. So oh. it's just layering right. genius on top of genius. So um, right, I do think uh, they're playing a little bit with the question of who the protagonist is, um, and it's it's kind of a relationship between the three of them. You know, even uh, Anton Chigurh has a little bit of his own arc and his own story. But uh, yeah, traditionally you would say Llewellyn Moss. He's the driver of the of the plot. He's the one that starts, who initiates everything. He's the one that takes the action, um, and he's kind of the prototypical hero that takes a very unconventional turn toward the end. Um, so, but let's let's go with let's go with uh, Llewellyn Moss. Will Llewellyn Moss achieve what? Uh, let's see. Will Llewellyn Moss? I mean, what is it? Save, uh, keep the money. Um, will he? I think the money is directly. Uh, it's definitely part of the plot. Oh, will he escape? Will he escape Anton Chigurh? Will he right? escape Anton Chigurh? Sure. Or you could say, it, will he outsmart Anton Chigurh? Outsmart the guy. Yeah, because he's yeah. constantly okay. like, basically, he's playing a game with death. He's playing a game of chicken with death, and he thinks he can cheat death. Hmm. And then yeah. uh, Ed Tom Bell is kind of following along. Cool. Very good. Uh, Sean of the Dead. Who's the protagonist for Sean of the Dead? Sean. Sean is the protagonist. Very good. He, he is. So what is... Uh, sh will Sean achieve what? Will Sean achieve... Uh, well, I happen to have seen your... Uh, Sean of the Dead vivisection, which I absolutely love, by the way. Thanks, man. Um, really great use of uh, uh, both Freudian and, and Jungian theory. Um, uh, I believe that the dramatic question is, will Sean uh, protect his family through this ordeal? His friends and family. Yeah, through the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, through the zombie apocalypse. That's exactly right. Cool. And it kind of has a little yeah. bit of a double uh, Our dramatic question is, will he get back together with his girlfriend? Um Sure. But that feels like a subplot of that. Well, they, they, the, the two dramatic questions, one dramatic question becomes a means to the other dramatic question, which we also saw in Hail Caesar. Mm. 
interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, uh, so yeah. Inception. I ain't touching this one, dude. Yeah? <laughs> well, Inception. Uh, will it's a very, it's, it's, a, will it's a labyrinth of a plot. It's definitely a labyrinth, but it has a very simple, clear, specific, dramatic question. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Go for it. Will they implant Inception in the, in the, the dude? What's his name? It's not the client, but the client's target. Okay, so the, we need a character. Well, uh, you know, will Cobb successfully... It's in the title. Incept. Incept, yes. Will he incept <laughs> in that, uh, the, the idea in the businessman? In, um, there you go. Will it actually work? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Uh, Jaws. Jaws! <laughs> We've got Jaws in the ocean. <laughs> I was um, in Jaws! <laughs> Walter Matthau, I don't think, was in Jaws. Jaws in the ocean! <laughs> Her fish and my fish and I. <laughs> okay. Um, what was he used to. Um, Will. Sheriff Brody Brody capture the jaw the 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 fish the the shark cool yeah it's simple will Sheriff Brody stop the shark from eating more people or kill the shark we're gonna need a bigger boat yeah yeah great yeah okay this is a little bit of a tricky one dramatic question Star Wars a new hope hmm okay if it's tricky, then uh... it's it's surprisingly tricky. You think it's it is it's a simple structure. It's very clear, mm -hmm. but it takes an unconventional approach. Uh, will uh, Luke Skywalker uh, join the rebellion? Um, will Luke Skywalker ever get out of Dodge? See, that's you what's know? interesting. It actually has two episodes within one movie. The first yeah, episode okay. is, will he rescue the princess from the Death Star? Ah, or will he rescue the princess? That's right, because... And then he right. rescues her halfway through the movie. They get away. And then a, a little over halfway through. And then he gets there, and yeah. then... Uh, and then the, the midpoint is, hey, uh, you want to blow up the Death Star too? <laughs> I mean, you're here. <laughs> so it, it's well, a very I mean, unusual well, structure, but it, it has two dramatic questions. Save the princess, destroy the Death Star. Because they're, you know, we're... You know, I've never been... Go ahead. I've never done an analysis on Star Wars, to be very honest. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think what the, the midpoint was... Saving the princess, but then is the low point killing Ben Kenobi? Uh, we should do a separate is, episode is that? on that because it actually has a surprisingly ah. unconventional structure for being one of the most popular popcorn movies. Uh, literally, like this, the, like it, it blew away Jaws. It's this. It's the third blockbuster ever. Right, um, but the low point. I mean, him losing his. Uncle and oh, we'll, okay. we'll talk, talk about, about that, that later. Uh, but dramatic question. Uh, yeah, so the dramatic question is the spine of your story. You want to be able to identify it. It's usually part of the pitch. It's the concept. It's the premise. Uh, and, and it's plot driven. A lot of people, when they talk about their stories, they get pulled into theme. 
And when you're selling your story, when you're pitching your story, you want to know what the what the the conflict that they're going to be facing. And the the dramatic question is all about the conflict, and it implies character. Okay. Cool. Hmm. Okay. Um, I like. All it. right, that that wraps it up for um, story bites. Let's jump into the asshole. I really like this question because it it, it it's uh, it highlights a lot about a lot of assumptions that people are making about storytelling, uh, and the question is: Is a passive protagonist always bad? It's very. Uh, I like the way it was phrased because it, it implies a lot of assumptions about character and about story. Um, but what are your thoughts on passive protagonists, Todd? I uh, I love a great pr- passive protagonist. I love the idea that someone kind of gets pulled kicking and screaming, doesn't really want to kind of own up to it, because that's me. I'm definitely a procrastinator. I'm a guy who puts things off. Um, and and I, there's a certain point in the film where they've got to kind of man up and do what, they're, what they've got, they know they've got to do. So passive protagonists, I, I enjoy seeing that because I, I connect with it, to be very honest. Um, <laughs> My my favorite passive protagonist is probably Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's uh, interesting. Was Wait, of, you're going to have to elaborate on that yeah. for me. Okay, well, Mr. Smith, he goes to Washington. <laughs> spoilers. And, uh, <laughs> spoilers. Well, you know, he kind of learns the ins and outs of this thing, but he doesn't make a lot of decisions. There's like not a lot of decisions that he, he makes. And as a passive protagonist, that's actually how you kind of identify a, press, a passive protagonist is because he lets things happen to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, I mean, Jimmy Stewart's actually a great example on several of his films. There were passive protagonists like Harvey. He just kind of let things happen. Hmm. Things just kind of, he, let, he lived his life. Um, you disagree with that? I'm not convinced yet. Um, I'm a I'm a little vague. Okay. I'm a little foggy. Um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I haven't I haven't plot. I, it's been years since I've seen it, so I'm not quite sure where the actual plot starts. It's been a while for me as well. Yeah. But he kind of. Can you think a of a more recent of, film, goes, or uh, or maybe one that I've that I'd be more familiar with of a passive mm, protagonist? Maybe um, Evan Almighty. That okay. Evan that's Almighty's interesting. Said. Okay. You know, I hadn't thought yeah, of him that way. That's interesting. Yeah, Evan's kind of like he's not making decisions. He's got a life he wants to live, but the plot keeps pulling him in this direction. Well, I mean, um, but his story, like him resisting it, is him being proactive. It is him taking an initiative. Sure. You know, what, let's uh, let, let I mean, me you uh, can look at it either way. Let, you can... Let's let's talk about the pass, passivity and protagonists a little bit because the common wisdom. Okay. The conventional wisdom is passivity uh, causes us to disinvest. Uh, so a passive character, we tend to not invest in in them because we get frustrated because we're like, why are we watching this person who just wants to sit in the corner? And everything that's it, it, basically everything is happening to them. They're not taking any responsibility for their actions. They're just this kind of innocent bystander who is just being pelted. Like they're just they're just a, a, a job. Where you know God has made a, a deal with the devil, and they're just beating the shit out of them until there's um, yeah, and and then the question becomes like, well, why are we just torturing these characters? 
which, you know, mm-hmm. torture is good, but it, we don't really get much meaning from just uh, a character who is just innocently going about their day and then just gets the shit beaten out of them. We, uh, we learn the most from characters who are driven by an unconscious drive that wants something powerful and are, f- or, or, or are very driven to make sacrifices to achieve something that most of us wouldn't sacrifice to achieve or um, it, it's those dramatic situations that we that we emotionally invest in and passive characters sure. rarely do that for us uh, a really it's one of my biggest criticisms for uh, Rogue One uh, a Star Wars movie um, a beautiful art direction beautiful cinematography I loved so much about that movie but my biggest frustration was the main character first time we see uh, the second time we see her actually I really like the opening I, I love how dark and gritty and interesting it was mm. and then the next time we see her she's in chains she's handcuffed and then they're breaking her out of a transport vehicle and then they drag her at gunpoint to the next place and then they drag her to the next place and they drag her to the next place now finally she gets to meet you know the rebellion and so she is on a tour she is just being like hey you know everything is orientation for her and basically, she's just sitting there listening, saying, I rebel. I'm a rebel in chains and handcuffs. Basically, and then all of a sudden, she's a leader. Like, she's being led by the nose from plot point to plot point. Other people are being motivated. And she's just being dragged from plot point to plot point until finally she gives a speech. And I guess she's a leader all of a sudden because she all of a sudden cares. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately, her passivity is what caused me to disengage the whole plot. Uh, I wanted her to be driven. I wanted her to care deeply about something and take actions. Um, Even if it's like in the opposite direction of where the plot is taking her, that's fine. If she's being resistant, that's great. Show her cleverness, show her genius. And instead it's just, well, I've got a gun, a laser gun pointed at me. I'm just being dragged from place to place. And because of that, we're not getting any emotional arc. Like she is, because she's just being led around, all we're seeing is her internalizing something. Now, I will say this. We talked about the mice quotient in another episode. The milieu, idea, character, and event. Uh, kind of right. uh, articulated by uh, Orson Scott Card. <clears throat> now, now, most of what we talk about with plot uh, is uh, directed toward um, idea and character. And sometimes event. But, uh, but it's mostly, like, especially with film, it is very character-oriented. That's what audiences tend to respond to now. Now, earlier, like Tolkien and earlier um, uh, a lot of travel novels and things like that were more interested in milieu, which means they were interested in characters, very underdeveloped characters that were going to go see a new world and experience a new culture. Um, and it was, it was very indicative of kind of this expanding world where you could have tourists and travel and all these exotic stories coming from different countries and different worlds. So the character wasn't nearly as important um, as, as uh, seeing something interesting. So, so you did have a lot of passive characters who were just kind of along for the ride. Um, mm. But what we found is that a lot of those stories tend to not give us an emotional core. And most of what we're looking for story, what we're looking for in story, is some sort of emotional engagement. And the, and the character is the filter through which we interpret an emotional engagement. That's, that's why if, if I see a passive character, I want to find something to motivate them. I want to give them... Even if I want them to resist the plot, 
which, you know, um, lots of uh, like uh, Campbell's heroes often reject a call, which uh, and then they they're involuntarily forced or compelled to engage it for one reason or another. Um, but generally speaking, you do want to avoid a passive protagonist. Um, but there are there are a few examples of some passive protagonists that were interesting, like uh, Hereditary. The whole movie is largely about people losing their agency. So they there are characters who are still going about their world, but as they go about, or they're still going about their day, um, pursuing their own objectives. But little by little, their objectives get commandeered by an external haunting, disturbing force until ultimately they're they're forced to reckon with it. But that you know that's that's a good example of where agency or the loss of agency is one of the themes and becomes actually part of the conflict. Um, so it can be done. You just have to be smart when you're doing it. You just have to have a very good reason. And Hereditary, I think, is actually a good example of, of doing it well. You still care about the characters. You still invest in the characters, but they're um, but they are they do lose. They do become passive or uh, ultimately just victims of external forces that are way beyond their control. Okay, I have a question for you. Shoot. What about the movie Mother? That's a great... Lawrence's character. That, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. that. That is such a great example. Yeah. Mm, that's a she really good just example. Says, things are happening to her. You know what? And that's true. And most of the frustration comes from her, like, her powerlessness. And, you know, I, I realize that's what the metaphor is all about. She represents Mother Nature and um, and Javier Bardem. I think the... Represents God. She's, she's the all-mother. Like, you know, she's mm -hmm. the all-mother. Like, she's the feminine in the... in the Or the procreative in the... Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's a good example. It's interesting because the truth of it is is it's a, it's a really good example of a highly allegorical movie. Basically, once they cut mm -hmm. to the outside, the exterior of the house, and they showed there was no driveway, that's when I was like, oh, it's just an allegory. <laughs> so was, yeah. like, that, was, that was the moment where, up until then, I was actually investing in the absurdity of it. Now, it did ha she did have an objective. She did want to just contain her house and be at peace mm -hmm. and rebuild her house the way she wanted. So she did have a clear objective. She just didn't take as much of an initiative. I guess, I mean, hence passive. That's a, good, that's a really good point. And most of her story is all about how she's, you know, she's just this innocent victim, which is part of like, it's part of what is what makes it frustrating is like, this is just, you know, mm -hmm. this is just her kind of saying, woe is me, all these people treat me horrible. And it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really reveal much about character. Now, because they're allegories, you, you tend to disengage from the emotional investment and then it becomes an intellectual exercise. And that's that's part of the thing you're risking when you become allegorical. When you prioritize the I mean, allegory over the feelings. character. Yeah? I mean, I felt a lot of feelings with her. She, um, I mean, I think that's the genius of that casting because Jennifer Lawrence... Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we already have a relationship with her yeah. and she's... Um, She's also you. You want to go? I mean, I went to it because it was a Jennifer Lawrence film. I mean, yes, it's uh, um, Anton or what's his name? Uh, Darren Aronofsky. Darren uh, Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. Who's you know brilliant? Yeah. Um, He's and I went and saw it. Actually, I went and saw it. I remember under your recommendation. Oh yeah. Uh, because because I just thought okay, I'll go because I don't watch. See, I would actually call Mother kind of a uh, a, a horror film. 
I would definitely put that in the horror genre. See, to me, it was absolutely horrifying. See, I thought I thought of it as a, a comedy that turned into absurdity that turned into a horror movie, and that's what I loved about it. Like I was laughing my ass off. Like I thought it was genuinely yeah. funny and playful from the moment the title comes up. Um, and I thought that set right. the tone. It was like, okay, this is playful and absurd. And they're they're definitely playing with ideas here, which is, which is what was so great about it is that he was willing to play with ideas. Uh, but yeah, and then it turned into just a freaking horror film. No! Um, that's interesting. I yeah. think maybe we should do an episode on Mother. That would be fascinating. All right, that wraps up our asshole. Look at the asshole! Let's jump into the vivisection, shall we? You want a vivisection? All right, this week we watched the movie Seven. We're going to dive into the deep end. Uh, Todd, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a recap on Seven? All right, well, Seven was released in 1995, directed by David Fincher and written by Andrew Kevin Walker, starring Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, and, of course, Lee Ermey. Um A quick summary would be two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, on a serial killer who uses uh, the seven deadly sins as his motives. Great. Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter gave it 83%, but the audience liked it 95%. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Um, the budget was about $30 million, some say $33 million. Um, but uh, released in September 22nd, 1995, uh, the domestic gross... Uh, was 100 million and uh, the world gross is 300 wow really wait and how much time that's box office that is box office that's not even video wow that's uh wow yeah that's surprising i mean there yeah it was it was a big deal um we, it's been a few years, yeah. but yeah, I still think it has has held it on to kind of the more morose kind of audience member. They like this kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not one of those people. Seven is actually quite painful for oh. me to watch uh, because I like Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. Yeah, she's great because she's she's not faking a British accent, so I kind of like her for. That. Does she do that now? <laughs> oh, she does oh. it a lot. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I didn't realize it did that well. I mean, I knew that it was. I knew that it was successful. Um, I didn't know that it was. Um, I didn't know that it was such a blockbuster. That, that kind of surprised me. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't totally surprise That's me. Huge. Like you mentioned, Seven. It, it's like one of the Fincher movies that people go to. It's an early Fincher movie. Um, it's still very, very true to Fincher. Um, which is interesting. I still don't think it's quite as sophisticated as his other stuff, but I still love it. Um, and mostly because of uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But um, right. cool. Okay. Um, thanks for doing that recap. That was really good. Um, let's uh, let's dive into the deconstruction. So we're going to talk about structure. Mm, story structure. We're going to be uh, taking this uh, four-act uh, paradigm and kind of laying it over the script and the story and see if we can identify some of the... Um, the machinery uh, in the script uh, and and in the story and how it works. Um, So first of all, as we mentioned before uh, in our story bites, we always start with a dramatic question, okay? Um, We got a two hour movie 
lots of events, lots of scenes that are happening. So what we want to start doing is organizing the events uh, to recognize their dynamics and see how they work together to, to be the story engine that it is. Uh, so the first thing is the dramatic question, and the dramatic question is always tied directly to the climax. The climax is the answer to the dramatic question. It's that dangling cause that builds all the tension and ties the whole story together. Okay. So what is the dramatic question for this, Todd? This is a will a protagonist achieve X? Will Morgan Freeman's character catch the seven deadly sins killer? <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I think that's almost correct. I think it's correct, but I think you can elaborate it just a little bit. And the key to this okay. is is that it's it's um, it's not just Morgan Freeman's character. It's can Morgan Freeman or will Morgan Freeman's character. Uh, and Brad Pitt's character. So will Somerset and Mills catch the serial killer or stop the serial killer? Okay. Okay. Good. And so because of that, like their relationship and them working together is actually integral to the plot. Um, And and then uh, then we can jump straight to the climax. What is the climax? Do they do they stop the killer? No. They don't. Does the killer kill I mean, anymore? He achieves it. Yeah. I mean, the killer achieves his objective, which is to complete the entire seven deadly sins. See, okay. Then, then we can elaborate on the dramatit question. Then the question becomes, will Somerset and Mills stop the killer from killing seven victims? And then the answer is... No, they don't. One of the one no, it's of a tragedy. Yeah, Mills becomes the agent of the murderer. He becomes the weapon for, that the murderer is wielding, throwing himself in there. Yeah, ultimately, Frank Danielle uh, spoke of if the dramatic question is answered no, then it would be definitively a tragedy. Which this That's film is absolutely a tragedy. That is so interesting. Uh, I'd never heard that. Yeah, he, um, yes, I'm quite interested. <laughs> yes, you are, um, and handsome. <laughs> but yeah, no, and, and so this movie is, to me, a classic modern tragedy. Uh, and yeah. to be honest, very painful to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That what's in, what, what's in the box scene is genuinely painful. What's in the box? I mean, it's my impression of Brad Pitt will probably get us into some sort of uh, copyright. Because <laughs> it's so convincing. So, I don't. Yeah, because it's so convincing. What's in the box? What's in the box? Hey, Somerset. Fucking box. Because it's so emotionally vulnerable. And yet uh. I buy it 100%. Oh, a hundred percent. Like it's, it's, it's uh, and you feel like, tell me you wouldn't pull that trigger. If you were yeah. in Mill's place and uh, yeah, just, it's, it's almost too dark Absolutely. to even imagine. And you feel 100% like, fuck yes, I would pull the trigger. And yet that makes you part of the monster. It makes you a weapon in the hands of the monster. Yeah, what does that say about you know the human condition? I mean, I, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so from uh, so we've got the dramatic question, and the climax. Then the next um, 
The next thing we want to identify is the impetus. And again, the impetus is the presentation of the problem that the dramatic question reconciles or, or reckons with. Uh, so what is the impetus in this? Uh, the impetus is... Remind me of what's happening. They see... Okay, the, so the dramatic question is, is the, will Mills and Somerset stop the killer from killing his seven victims? Oh, is it when he realizes that, or realizes that the 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 killings are connected? Yes, exactly. That's exactly yes. right. Good. Yeah, that's right. So basically, he says this is the beginning. He says we've got gluttony, we've got greed, we've got seven deadly sins. There's going to be five more. He says this is just the beginning. Yeah. I'm out. I can't do right. this. I'm only here for seven more days. Or was it seven? At that point, I think it's five more days. And he's like, I'm I'm going to yeah. be retiring. Give this to Mills. I'm out. I can't do this. Okay. Right. Good. Right. So that's that's the impetus, and that happens right about 15 minutes in. So right on schedule. That's that's prototypical for uh, most um, tentpole movies. Is you have that 15 minute impetus. That that the actual dramatic question. Um, they don't really cross into the second uh, act until right around 37 minutes, which is a little bit later. Mm. Um, actually, I should ask you that. When when do we articulate the dramatic question? When 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 do they cross into the second act? I seem to remember there was a moment where you could literally feel the curtains close right? and then open back up yeah. again. And I don't remember when that was. Um, so the, this, the plot, the story, is all about these two detectives working together to solve, to, to stop this murderer, stop the serial killer. So was it, it was after the dinner that they had at his, at his, at Mills' house with his wife. And didn't she literally, like, she, like, woke up with her head in frame i think wasn't that the beginning of the second act like so uh, what we want to do is identify the moment that the dramatic question is presented in other words and it's presented uh when the characters start to take the steps to solve the problem so it it is the moment when somerset comes over for dinner and then it's after dinner. They've had their nice social night, and they're sitting out on the couch. Mm-hmm. And Somerset's giving them advice, saying, "This is this is what you need to look at," because for the first time, they're working together. the The whole first act, okay. Somerset and Mills, excuse me, Somerset and Mills are at opposite ends of the spectrum. They're they're fighting. They're in conflict. They mistrust each other. One is um, Brad Pitt is really aggressive. Um, overbearing, mm-hmm. overconfident, cocky, and uh, Somerset is uh, very cautious, very methodical, um, and uh, Somerset doesn't want anything to do with it. Um, and Mills just he, he right. wants to prove to everybody that he can do this job, and that's why he's constantly like touting his credentials and everything, and saying, you know, take me seriously. So the moment when they're working together is when those curtains close because they say, okay, these guys are now on the same page. They're going to work together. From this point on, it's both of them against the killer. Before that, they were off separately and they weren't working well together. It wasn't until they started working together that they actually started making the progress. Once we identify the impetus, um, we got the dramatic Mm -hmm. question, the climax, then we want to start tracking the emotional turns. And so the next thing we'll look for is the midpoint. Okay, what is the midpoint of the movie? The midpoint of the movie. It would have to be 
Well, okay, now I had a theory about this because I remember him going and bribing a federal official. Um, and I thought, wait a minute. Um, is that how he would normally attack a problem, which is to go outside of the rules of what he was doing? But then I remember what what else? Because because he they met with the uh, the FBI guy who wasn't really clear that he was FBI for a little while, and then he and then they basically got a hold of a list of people who were getting these books out of the library and then they went to so I'm thinking the midpoint is when they ran into the uh, the killer at the staircase right do you remember when they he did that they no they were at the I door. do I do remember that Okay, so the midpoint uh -huh. is, let, let's just talk about the dynamics or the function of the midpoint. The okay. midpoint is often where the characters are having some success or they think they're having success getting closer to solving the mm -hmm. problem, getting closer to achieving yeah. the, the results of the dramatic question, engaging the dramatic question. And then they hit the midpoint and they think, all right, we've solved it, we've got this. And then the floor drops out from under them and they realize it's way more complex than they ever could have expected. And this is a much bigger problem than they thought. And then they start going down the hill. Okay, now. And that's when we shift from Act 2 right. to Act 3 at the midpoint. Oh, okay, never mind. Uh, okay, so it's when they actually find the place and they're, they're in the, they're in the, uh, the inner sanctum of Good. the killer. So they've actually found yeah. his sanctum. They actually found where he is. Yeah. And yet this is when they're like, we've got him. We, we know where he lives. We, we literally had a shootout, a chase scene. Uh, it was a really great set piece, really tense. Uh, yeah. And you're just like, oh, he's right there. He's right there. Get him. You're, you're so close. And then, um, and then he gets away. Like, he almost kills Brad Pitt and just by some, like, fucked up mercy, like, allows him to live, which even fucks with uh, Mills' head even more. Um, when they're chasing down the alley, and then he uh, hits him on the head. He's on top of the truck, and he hits him on the head. Yeah. And he puts a gun yeah. to him, and then he just walks away. Which, uh, you know, if Why I'm a, if I'm just a police, if I'm a police officer, if I'm a trained detective, and someone's pointing a gun at me, I'm gonna look at the face. I'm gonna look at the person pointing yeah. the gun at me. But whatever. They they needed it. that was a that was a, a plot contrivance, but it it worked anyway. It's and the the exact moment where we hit the midpoint. Is when he says, "We had him. He was the, he was a photographer in the stairwell, because he sees the picture mm -hmm. of himself with Morgan Freeman or sorry Somerset behind him, and that's, that's the right, moment yeah. where they're like, "Fuck, we were so close to having this, and he's gone. Mm -hmm. In fact, no fingerprints. We have no idea who this identity is. This is way bigger than we have the resources to handle. That right there is the midpoint. That's that's what shifts it." Okay, um, so from the midpoint, we had him and, a let, and we let him go. Once we identify the midpoint, then we want to go to the low point. Oh, sorry. I mean the low point of this film. What is the low point? So the low I point mean, is usually the moment where people, the, the protagonist has lost all hope and they're forced mm -hmm. to kind of reckon with themselves 
and say, I, if I'm going to solve this problem, I need to change my ways. What am I? And then, and then from there, they, they once it's usually where the, the an arc is completed, and they're humble enough to say, I need to change my internal value system. And then a new path is presented to them, and they find a new way to solve the problem. Right now, and Frank Danielle's paradigm, I remember them discussing that uh, it's where the protagonist has lost the will to fight. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. And so they move from the low point, which is, all right, you've you've beaten the crap out of me. What do I need to do now? Yeah. Um, And they're willing to accept whatever answer is correct. So um, and my. I I think personally, the emotional low point on this because here's the thing it's a it's kind of a buddy movie mm-hmm. and in a buddy movie usually the low point is the separation of the buddies. you're exactly right when we were doing pineapple express yeah. uh we had to do pineapple express todd was uh, had been in the accident so he couldn't make it to a couple episodes but um yeah in pineapple express yeah. the low point was when they split up and you're right in in yeah. buddy cop movies or in buddy movies in relationship movies the two main characters split up that doesn't happen here and and the, it does not happen here i know well, that actually i would suggest uh, there's you can make an that argument the, that it does hold on or go go ahead well okay okay cuz my belief is and this you, you know this is the way i look at it the the low point and the climax are the same thing in like the in emotional seven? in 7 okay like, Make a case for that. Um, the That's very point, unconventional. You almost never the, have the low point and the climax be the same thing. It is the worst freaking thing that ever happened to Mills. It's the worst thing that Somerset could imagine. Mm-hmm. Is the loss of this angel, mm-hmm. the the wife. This literally when she's being shot on every level, she is. Uh, She's shot with this halo. She wears a lot of white. Yeah. I mean, literally. So um, when, you know, the what's in the box, when they realize what's in the box, and when Somerset's trying to go, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, he's going to make you the final. You're just um, playing into his I hands. I feel like that that's both. I just feel like that's both the climax and the low point at the same time. Because what does what does Brad Pitt do? He gives in to the shooting um, the wrath that the the killer wants him to give into. He wants to prove uh, Mills that he is just as human as the rest of us. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of my argument. Is It's just that, I, yeah, that's but, all. That's so here's the thing. Uh, you would have to completely break from uh, convention, story, structure, convention, to say mm-hmm. that the climax is the low point. Sure, but this isn't a this isn't a conventional movie. I mean, you got the I mean, you got it, the impetus right at fifteen minutes. You got the dramatic question a little sure. after 35, 37 minutes. You got the midpoint about halfway between the climax and the dramatic question. A lot of the convention it's following all the conventions. It's almost kind of a procedural. Would you? How much would you okay. bet? What are you willing to bet that you're right? That you're right. Uh, I got a hundred bucks on me. I, I, 
I'd uh, I'd bet that. Okay. How about we just bet dinner? <laughs> okay. All right. Dinner. All right, dinner is on you if you're wrong. Okay. Okay. See, but I have to acknowledge that I'm wrong. That's a bad bet. Ooh, that's a bad bet. All right. It is a bad bet. Well, survey says. But hang on. This is your podcast, so I'm going to let you, you know. Okay. Survey says. Survey says the low, po- the low point is the climax. You're absolutely correct. Nah. You're 100% true. Next dinner's on me. We'll, we'll go hit a Chinese buffet. So this is one of the things I love about this movie is that uh, Walker structured it in a very unconventional way. Um, he, he, he presented a structure that I haven't really seen in a film before where it, it's following kind of the conventional structure. You've got the midpoint right at kind of a, a typical moment right around a, uh, an hour, 20 minutes. Um, and then all of a sudden, the killer just hands himself up. He just gives up. He hands himself over to the police. Mm-hmm. He puts himself in the hands of the detectives. And they never get to solve the murder. And then from there, it's almost like it's a completely new episode. It's a new movie. And he says, I've got this one request. And this is, let me see. This is a solid 145. 140. So this is a solid uh, 30 minutes, 30, almost, uh, 35 minutes where from the time that he gives himself up until the climax. This is its own episode. It's its own set piece. And they draw it out beautifully with really interesting tension. It totally breaks with the convention. Um, the detectives don't actually solve the crime. Um, and then, uh, so he, he structures it in such a way, like right at um, uh, an hour 45, uh, he starts a new act that I call the final request. It's a very unconventional thing. Mm. And this is a great example of taking the structure and then breaking it to make it work for your story. He's speaking to his themes. And that's what makes this, that's what makes this story different from just like conventional, are, are they going to catch a serial killer? They, they turned it into its own story. The detectives don't even solve the crime. They're completely out of their depths. This is a story where it's almost like Walker identifies more with a serial killer than with the detectives. Um, so in that moment the the final request is uh is when um with john doe turns himself in and and basically has his lawyer talk to him and he says i'll I'll confess to everything i'll give you everything you want i just have one request we have to go out to this place uh in the desert in lancaster um cool so uh we get this um uh, so we we get a good overlook. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, from from the over the overall bones, we have the pretty much the 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 big ups and downs of the movie, and we also want to get the hook. What is the hook of the movie? Oh man. Well, it has to be. Um, What's the opening image? Do you remember? Yeah, the opening image was the dead body. Right, there was a dead body on the ground. Nope. In an apartment? Nope. Oh, no, there was... No. Sorry, man. It, it's been a minute. So let's see. Um, the opening sequence, the opening shot is um, Somerset getting ready in the morning. That's right. He's over right. a sink. And he, uh, and he looks at a little chessboard. He looks at the chessboard yeah. and then walks past it as the... As the um, uh, the focus racks focus to the chessboard and then cuts 
So, because I, I tried pausing it to see if I could figure out what the configuration was, just to see if there was like some sort of ah. like secret metaphor in there. I, I didn't find one, but I'm, I'm curious. I might go revisit that. And then we just get a sequence of Somerset getting dressed uh, for his day at work, and we hear this couple arguing in the next apartment. And then it, and then yeah. it cuts to the dead body, which is actually Andrew Kevin Walker. He played the dead body in, in that scene, in that ah, shot. That wa- <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I think that's so cool he did that. Ugh. I love that. Yeah, that's way cool. That's way cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and what that says, it, it says so much, you know, uh, we always look at the hook as kind of the, the overture where you establish the themes and the tone. This is what the movie is talking about in miniature. It's a beautiful way of doing it. It's, it's we're introduced to Somerset visually, cinematically. This is why Fincher is one of my favorite directors. I keep saying that because... I want to talk about the directors that I love. I want to talk about the writers and directors and storytellers that I love. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, and Fincher is just, he, he's, uh, he's always right. He's just always right with his storytelling. He, the choices he makes, uh, he's, you always feel like you're in good hands and he always has so many layers. Anyway, so that hook is a very understated story. It's not a chase scene. It's not something uh, dramatic. You do get to the dead body, but it's after a kind of quiet moment with that you get to spend alone with Somerset and it makes you feel intimate. It makes you feel close to him and it makes you start to wonder about him. Um, he's just somebody that's completely removed from the world that he's inhabiting. And it's, it's very, it's great. It's so simple and understated. And, uh, and then we jump right into the character introductions. Um, so we intro Somerset and then we, then we meet Mills at the, the crime scene. That's the overall structure. That's kind of the bones of it. And then from there, we can start to fill in the different scenes. And, you know, I, we mapped this out uh, based on the emotional arcs. So each scene kind of goes along that movement, uh, the, the ups and downs uh, the as we go. And then we can also see where the act is. You know, we got act one right at the hook. Uh, it ends at the dramatic question, right about 37 minutes. Uh, goes into act two. Act two ends at the midpoint, right about um, an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, and then Act Four actually starts. Uh, act Three is very short. It's just a short sequence where they're just they're tr- uh, basically Somerset has decided I'm going to extend the time. I'm going to stick around a little longer so we can solve this, so we can end this. Um, and that's when we boom. At, we're in the middle of Act Four, and it's a completely new set piece. It's almost a new story in a way. Same dramatic question, but a totally different strategy. And we we do act breaks according to the strategies the characters taking. The characters are taking to solve their problems. Okay. Now, I, I'm looking at your your chart here, and I see a lot of substrate yellow marks. Yes. I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about that more when we get into shot your plot hole. But yes, okay. you're exactly right. Notice that um, there is not a lot of highs or a lot of lows. Like right when you're right at the line is right when you're kind of zen, right? And then when you're above the line, that's mm-hmm. you're happy. And then the further you are above the line, it's it's that that adulation or excitement. And the further you drop below the line, it's negativity, sadness, heartbreak, right? And mm. we're seeing kind of a steady line. If you look at other episodes like ET, you see these really big highs, really deep lows, right? Really dramatic. Um, this is this is a story where we're not getting a lot of emotional up and ups and downs. We're getting kind of a, a steady progressive. Um, it, it's almost more of a mood than it is uh, than it is an emotional roller coaster. 
Mm. Um, which, yeah. you know, I, I think there's something to be said about that. This is a neo-noir, so they are pulling from the a lot of the noir characters, uh, character arcs, character insights. Um, it's very grim, so that's why they almost never yeah. really... The closest they get to being above the line is the moment where they're kind of bonding in the living room. And we're like, oh, they're laughing. They're laughing at what a shitty place they're in. Um, but yeah, most of the time, it, it's it's pretty... Uh, it's pretty macabre. It's pretty melancholical. Uh, but not. it's not devastating until, boom, right at the low point, right at the climax, it just drops. Um, which uh, yeah. ties into, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that with plot hole, uh, with shut your plot holes. Um, okay, so from there, once we get the structure down, we this is all just plotting, which means it's all external. This is the character wants this, and this is how they go about it, right? So we identify the obstacles, we understand the intentions, and the purpose of the obstacles is to reveal the character. And the way we reveal the character is this um, this rubric, which is starting with the external, the conscious desire, and working our way inward through the unconscious drive to the core of uh, our weakness uh, or our fallibility, the Achilles heel, that is reckoning or conflicting with the moral imperative. And then we use all of this to inform us of the central theme. And from this, we can derive the central theme. Okay. So the conscious desire and the dramatic question are pretty much the same thing. They're, they're, they're wedded together. Um, now, real quick, we need to identify the protagonist. This is a buddy cop movie. Does it have a single protagonist or is this a two-hander? Hey, I... I mean, I think you're pretty. Com- I'm I'm comfortable in saying that it's a buddy cop film, so it's. A, I think they're going hand in hand together. Okay. If you had to choose one character, who would you choose? Uh, I I would definitely say Somerset. Why? Um, I just think that he's making. Well, I don't know. I mean, he, my. My meter for that is I'm looking at who's making the decisions. If you're making decisions and you're actively, and so Somerset, I, I think, um, I'm trying to think of specific decisions that he's making because I mean he does decide to stay on. He does. He decides uh, to go to the policeman's library. Is there such a thing as a policeman's well, library? I want to talk about that when we get okay. to the plot. But yeah, it is. All right. That is the most well-guarded library ever. They have like a team of like six like, security Whoa. guards. Uh, <laughs> I love they that scene. Have the Da Vinci Codex. Right? And it's like they... <laughs> I love that. I love that moment where he's like, hey, how about this for some culture? And then he puts the boombox up and he starts playing, what was it, Pockable Cannon or something? Yeah. <laughs> It's it, whatever. I it's a cinematic device. Sure, I'll take it. It's it works I, for the most I, I kept thinking that Bruce Willis was going to show up in his fedora as Hudson Hawk. He's going to steal a book from the place or something. It's, <laughs> it, it was just kind of silly, you know. That's but, good, you know. Yeah, but it, it, it's fine. Yeah, for some reason they're really going to miss Somerset. Yeah, We're going to miss you, Somerset. Okay. Yeah, and spend lots of time in the library. Apparently, there, he spends guy. a lot of time in the library, and they miss him. <laughs> they miss watching him read books and making copies. The old bookworm. The old bookworm. <laughs> All right, um, we're gonna miss you. I agree with you about that. That anyway. the concept of agency. Um, is there a single scene that does not have Somerset in it? 
I mean, that's the thing, is that when we don't see Mills, we do see Somerset. We see Somerset meeting with the, the wife. Mm-hmm. We see Somerset um, making decisions early on in the story. Um, the opening scene is Somerset. Feel like it, yeah. It, yeah, the opening scene, he's framed. Literally, the, the director has framed him as the person to watch yeah. from, the, from the very beginning. And so certain degree i just kind of think uh, yeah yeah i think somerset is our 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 foray into this world he is our protagonist he's the one we follow um it's so well written because mills also has uh, a character arc and um and development but it's mm-hmm. it is he is largely there to function as uh, uh an instigator and and someone who motivates uh, somerset to go through the, the arc that he has as well um, so, yeah, I would say William right. Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character, is the main character of Seven. He is the protagonist that we follow. And, you know, that said, we still have it, – it's well written, so the characters are sophisticated, believable, palpable. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So what is Somerset's conscious desire for the story? What is the plot of the story? What does he want to accomplish? Well, I mean, his – his his conscious desire is definitely um, to find the killer to stop the killing. Yep, that's exactly right. To yeah. So, yeah. So the conscious desire is the external objective that gets us to uh, question why they want this, and and the the what is the conscious desire? The why is the unconscious drive, uh, and this is where normally you'd have to do a lot of detective work, but because of the way this uh-huh. is written, because this is uh, Neo noir, and it has like some um, hard boiled uh, dialogue and writing conventions. Um, the unconscious drive is actually pretty accessible because they're articulating it. The, the characters are articulating their own unconscious drives. What would you say is right. uh, Somerset's unconscious drive? Uh, I'm trying to remember what he because they had a, a, a really specific on the nose conversation, mm-hmm. and I think it was during the third third act where he was it's actually yeah i i mean they, they have a couple wait, conversations they do have a couple conversations mm-hmm. where they're saying like this is how i see the world this is my value system this is what i see you know um yeah. so but what it all kind of amounts to is conscious is conscious drive is ultimately that he's lost faith in his job he doesn't think his job he he thinks he's collecting evidence like a historian like he's just Okay. You know, he he's like my job isn't to, to do justice. My job isn't an instrument of justice. My job is, if anything, to record what is happening so that there's some record of it. Okay. He, he, you know what? And that might be one of the reasons why Fincher thought it, it it valuable to put him in the middle of a huge archive. We're going to get into that, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. I, I think they're, that, that speaks to the allegorical value of who they are. In fact, this is a story where I think the allegory plays really close to the skin of the onion. Um, so we'll dive into that. So yeah. he's lost his faith uh, in his job. That's his unconscious drive. He wants to finish. He wants to retire because he doesn't think he's actually doing anything good. So Which right. means the Achilles heel is kind of a belief that... Uh, it's, it's usually a belief that's inaccurate. It's a belief that might have been true under different circumstances, but because he's engaging a new moral sphere, he has to adapt to this new conflict, and which means he needs to update or resolve or grow beyond this Achilles heel. 
what would you say his Achilles heel is? Um, is his, uh, I don't know, lack of faith in the system or his... I, I agree with that. Uh, actually, you could, and just make it a little more personal. I would say he no longer feels he is making a difference. He's lost faith in oh, his job. Okay. Yeah. And the okay. reason that unconscious drive is what it is is because his Achilles heel is he's lost faith that he can personally make a difference. He doesn't think he's doing anything. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, which means that we – so we have this Achilles heel and he, uh, the Achilles the – relationship, the, the relationship between the conscious desire and the Achilles heel is that the conscious desire, if you want to achieve the conscious desire, you're going to have to reconcile that Achilles heel. And uh, and the way you do that is by facing the moral imperative. Basically, the moral imperative is the bouncer. Um, okay, say if story is. Oh, I like this metaphor. Hold on. Okay, if story is a club, right? Like, uh, and you want to get inside the club to meet that really hot guy, that really gorgeous girl, um, and. Mm. Uh, so your conscious desire is to get inside the club. The moral imperative is the bouncer at the door that says, if you want to get in here, you're going to have to show me your Achilles heel. And if you still have this Achilles heel, that means you're underage and you're not getting in. That's what the imperative, nice. moral imperative is. So you oh, have like to confront. That. So okay. that means every single conflict you're facing is the bouncer coming and saying, you still have this Achilles heel. You are still underage. You're not getting in. No matter how many times you come to me, I'm going to turn you away. So you can't get inside that club until you've reconciled this Achilles heel. Okay. And that's that's the okay. force that causes people to, to ch causes the characters to change when there is a, an arc present. Okay. Dude, I like that. Yeah, you're going to have to add... You're going to have to add that to the poster. Right? Though. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that. What would you say is Somerset's, the moral imperative that Somerset is facing scene after scene after scene? Hmm. Why does he, why has he lost faith in his job? Uh, because he's been consistently proven correct. I mean, he's been consistently proven that that people are garbage and they're going to do whatever is advantageous for them in the situation. Okay, so the moral imperative, the thing that he has to get by is the fact that, like, um, so his unconscious drive, he's, he's, he's lost faith in his job. And the reason he's lost faith is because he no longer feels he can make a difference. He feels like the rules of being a police officer... Oh, are not allowing him to solve the crimes he needs, to stop the crimes, to make any effective change. So the moral imperative simply says, if you're going to solve this crime, if you want to become the detective that you know you're capable of being, you're going to have to break the rules to do good. Because that's ultimately oh, every single scene where they make any kind of progress, it's because they're breaking the rules. It's they're going against the protocol. They're going against the policies. They're actually going, they're breaking the laws in order to enforce the laws. And actually in, in film noir, you're going to see that that is like a definitive characteristic of every film noir. Exactly. Which is that if you are staying with the rules, uh, you are not going to, you are not going to be successful. 
interesting. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know if I would have gone that direction with it, the yeah, moral imperative. The moral imperative is often the but, most obscure thing, but you, once you identify the pattern from scene to scene, every single scene mm-hmm. is all about how they're breaking conventions, and it's only when they learn to break a convention that they make any progress. Two okay. detectives that don't want to work together. Tracy brings them together, and they say, oh, okay, this is how we're going to solve it. Um, and then they're like, well, let's go, let's go interrogate this, uh, the, the wife. Let's go, uh, ask, let's go question the wife. And she's the one that is like, mm-hmm. oh, actually there is the paintings upside down. Um, let's go to the, let's get the library list. Let's kick the door open. Let's do, uh, let's push around the, the photographer. Um, so every single time, every single, uh, conflict that they're facing is basically them trying to respect the rules um, knowing that respecting the rules it is, is what's keeping them from solving the mystery mm. and from catching the killer man that's that's good stuff man <laughs> cool so no, I, you know it's so once we once we identify the the moral imperative uh, the moral imperative is simply the source of conflict in each scene so then the question becomes, uh, once they've reckoned with it, once they've, uh, once they've fought their way and they finally get to the point where Brad Pitt shoots John Doe, what is the central theme? What is the lesson we take away from this story? That, what is the, the lesson the characters learn? Well, okay, so the, the moral imperative... I mean, it's the moral you know, imperative being. Go ahead. So I mean, part of it is that you know this is about sins. This is you know it's the seven deadly sins, um, and so they're mm-hmm. they're playing with this idea that you know um, this is taking seriously the concept of sin, um, at least from their evangelical perspective. Like they're, they're saying that the killer is uh, he's preaching, and then they said no, it's it's you know it's attrition. They're, he's trying to punish people who. Uh, who were only feeling guilty because they were caught. Um, which ties into ultimately the lesson they learn, the lesson that, that John Doe is trying to teach them, is that our hubris blinds us from our own sins. That's what John Doe was. He's, he's like, I, I'm guilty of this sin. I'm guilty of, um, what's it called? Of wrath? No, of... he's guilty of uh, coveting. He's like, I'm... So, um, oh, that's John right. Doe's that's guilty right. of coveting Mills's life. He wanted to be Mills. He wanted to have his wife as his own. Um, so, and that that was the whole uh, theme, is that every single scene is... And ultimately, that moral imperative in the Achilles heel shows that that's Somerset's own hubris. His hubris is he's willing to break the rules, even though... He knows it's wrong um, in order to solve the crime, in order to stop the killer. So he's rationalizing, justifying, because there are lives at stake. And ultimately, that hubris is what's leading him to make that sin. He's a corrupt cop. By by pure definition, he's a corrupt cop. Is he doing the right thing? I mean, he's definitely trying to. you know, it's like the, the, the scene with, uh, with Mills when he shoots John Doe. Like, is that the right thing for him to shoot John Doe? I mean, I know I want him to. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, so there's this thing that I've been uh, talking a lot about where um, I've, I've been noticing in, in the distinction between there's there is the theme that we extrapolate from the inner conflict, which is you know the lesson the character mm-hmm. learns, and there is uh, uh, that that's kind of become like the the proto theme. The theme that's the, the theme on its surface, and then there's a meta theme which is nested, embedded beneath the allegory, which is really like uh, Hail Caesar is a really great example of that because on the surface, Hail Caesar is a, a story about a capitalist bully who runs a studio beating the shit out of anybody who uh, disagrees with him, um, and it yeah. presents it as if he's the hero. Yay! He beat the shit out of a star, and now the star is going to go act and be faithful to the studio. But <laughs> the takeaway isn't you don't watch this and think, yay, isn't bullying great? You watch it and you think, this is talking about something bigger. This is talking about capitalism and so and communism and, and all those um, those interesting conflicts. Um, it's not saying that Josh Brolin's character was correct um, in doing what he did. It's commenting on that. That's not an endorsement. It's a commentary. And that's, that's an important distinction sure. to make. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's too easy for clumsy um, condemning critics to say, well, that movie was just endorsing uh, um, using abuse and using bullying to get what you want. And people are going to watch that and think, oh, you know, this is the right thing to do. It, they're not saying that. They're saying this is a power dynamic that's actually happening. Okay. Um, so anyway, okay. In seven, we're seeing that this is a movie that is having two conversations at once. Uh, on the surface, it's about two professional detectives learning to work together in order to solve a crime and stop a very dangerous predator. And then you see all of these little clues and these little hints that there's, there's actually talking about something much bigger. And this gets us into allegory. Now, allegory is simply when you take a metaphor extended into a narrative and you recognize how those patterns relate to other patterns. Sometimes it can be an historical narrative. Uh, sometimes it can be a specific um, allegory for a political allegory or religious allegory. It is simply when uh, a character's uh, choices overlap or match up with the patterns of other historical relationships okay so uh, with seven we're actually seeing a pretty detailed complex layered uh narrative that's that's right beneath the surface and that's what i love about this shot here is because it's it's saying that they're traveling through this world they're crossing into this this uh just sullen dry dead place um, with with you can just see sevens everywhere. You're saying this basically. This is a beautiful way of saying that there are just seven deadly sins everywhere, um, and you're seeing all these sevens hidden in in all these um, uh, telephone poles. Are these telephone poles or energy poles? Electricity. These are yeah. They're electrical. Uh, uh, what are they called? Structures. Okay. So know. power part yeah. of the power grid. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, so. In order to kind of uh, start deconstructing what this is, what the allegory of the story is, um, he, they actually give us a full clue. They're giving us the rubric in the story. Um, and he literally gives us, gives us a list of books we can show for the reference. Um, and, the, and first he mentions the seven deadly sins. And then the list is Dante's Purgatory, the Canterbury Tales, uh, and the Parsons Tale specifically, and the Dictionary of Catholicism, mm. and he hands that over to um, Mills, and then Mills gets the uh, 
gets the uh, catechism for dummies and purgatory for dummies and all that stuff. Um, so I wanted okay. to look at it's and see uh, what the relationship between these stories and seven uh, actually are. Um, so Canterbury Tales, uh, it was written by Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, this was, uh, what was it? It was written in 1386. Oh, sorry. It was written between 1386 uh, and 1400. Um, and basically it's a story about a pilgrim, a group of pilgrims that are heading down to uh, the Canterbury and uh, they're on a pilgrimage and uh, their host kind of gives them a competition and says, whoever tells the best story, um, I'll give you a free meal. And so, you know, each one starts to tell a story. And the last story is the parson. Now, everybody else was telling all these funny, goofy, interesting stories. Parson says, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm going to, um, uh, basically, he says he's going to preach. He's going to tell us, he's going to talk about the seven deadly sins. And um, even though the seven deadly sins aren't unique to Chaucer, uh, it's one of the most uh, classically represented uh, articulations of the seven deadly sins. Um, and Chaucer is, you know, he's he's also one of the great uh, fathers of uh, the literary tradition for storytelling. Um, now, the Parsons tale is the last tale in Canterbury Tales. And what's interesting is he died before finishing it, which means he never did finish. We never find out who told the best story. We never find out who got the, the free meal. <laughs> I think it's a little ironic. Um, but the Parsons tale seems from the evidence of its prologue to have been the intended as the final tale of uh, the poetic cycle, the Canterbury tale, the tale, which is the longest of all the surviving contributions by Chaucer's pilgrims. It's a good illustration of the seven deadly sins, but I think it ties directly into who these characters are in seven. Now let's look at the divine comedy. So the Divine Comedy is kind of broken into three parts. We've got uh, the Inferno, we've got Purgatory, and Paradise, or Paradiso. And um, it, it's the story of the journey of uh, Dante Alighieri. He writes himself as the main character, and it shows him going through the different uh, layers of hell, then Purgatory, and then ascending up to heaven. Um, and it was written... It, it, it was completed in 1320, uh, the year before his death. And, and what I think is so interesting about this is that uh, I think what, what uh, Andrew Kevin Walker and uh, David Fincher were actually doing is retelling the story of Dante's Inferno in a neo-noir setting. Wow. So, um, and specifically, uh, if, if you look at the characters... Uh, Dante's uh, Dante's Inferno. It's it's starring Dante, um, who was uh, he was also a politician, uh, who was um, he basically he got kind of fucked over by the Pope, uh, and then he was exiled to the north. Uh, he is from Florence originally, um, and was a, a a powerful political player, and then uh, was ended up exiled, and then he wrote uh, the Divine Comedy as commentary. Um, which is interesting. I, I always thought before that um, the um, when I was younger, I thought the Divine Comedy was kind of uh, Catholic propaganda to kind of scare the shit out of people, uh, get them to go to church. When the truth of it is, is it's actually a political allegory. Um, but at, at, at its heart, it shows um, Dante uh, meets up with Virgil 
and Virgil kind of guides him as uh, to, they take a tour through the nine layers of hell. And I believe that that's what Seven is actually doing. It's actually telling the story of Virgil and Dante in a neo-noir setting, uh, going through metaphorical layers of hell. Um, I think Mills represents Dante and Somerset represents Virgil. Virgil was the, the ancient historian and poet, uh, wrote the Aeneid. He was a... Um, and it, he was somebody that strongly inspired Dante. He was kind of uh, Dante's kind of spiritual mentor. Um, and that's why I think the, that's the real reason why they had Somerset in the library. They, they showed he's, he's extremely literary. And then on top of that, him saying that he's collecting pieces of evidence of, for, for the sake of history. Um, it, it's kind of like Virgil. It's also like Dante. They're not changing. They don't in their lives. They're not changing uh the systems of political justice or justice for in any way, but they are collecting these pieces, these artifacts in order to bring, give future generations some insight into how to organize ourselves. Um, and then Somerset, I think actually plays a dual role. Not only does he represent Virgil, the poet and the historian, but he also is a representation of Chaucer. Now Chaucer was an English poet and author widely considered the greatest English poet of the Middle Ages. He's best known for the Canterbury Tales. Uh, he's been called the father of English literature or, or, or alternatively, the father of English poetry. Um, now, the reason why I think he also represents uh, Somerset is because um, and basically in 1390, Chaucer uh, got robbed and he was injured during the robbery. So in the in the process of him kind of being, um, uh, he was uh, a caretaker um, and uh, responsible for for overseeing this this section of the forest. After he was robbed, uh, he was uh, he was given a job as a deputy forester uh, in the per, uh, in the Petherton Park in North Petherton, which is in Somerset, Somerset, England. Um, so. Somerset, it's interesting, you know, of all the of all the references for William Somerset, the detective to be researching. He just happens to be researching Chaucer, which is, you know, uh, he's the product of Somerset, the the city. That was really confusing. <laughs> so basically, it's, it's one more dimension that shows that um, uh, that William Somerset, the detective, Morgan Freeman's character is a metaphor for both Virgil and Chaucer. In, in the sense that they're cultured poets who are trying to make sense of hyper-religiosity. Um, and that's where we get the Parsons tale from. And f so for those of you that, that think that this is maybe just kind of grasping at straws, there's a few other little details that really, uh, one of the things I really like was looking for artifacts of the Inferno in the movie. Now, for example, uh, just before Virgil and Dante arrive at the one of the lowest levels of hell, the darkest levels, they're walking across this frozen lake, and they see these heads um, that are like these living people who are frozen in the lake, and the heads are kind of uh, just just above the surface, so they can see their eyes and part of their nose. Now, as they're walking through it, they pass by these giants that were guarding the gates. And then just past all these heads on the lake, they finally come to Satan and they see Satan upside down. Now, in the in their in the story, uh, they often refer to John Doe as the devil, and just like those those people who are frozen in a state 
of suffering in that lake where their heads are just above the surface of the water. In a similar mode, we have that one guy who's being slowly starved to death. Over the course of a year, they're barely keeping him alive. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, they, the doctor even says um, he, he's, you know, he's so fragile he could die if you just shine a flashlight in his eyes and he still has hell to look forward to. That's that's Fincher and uh, Walker saying this is the allegory. And one of the greatest little details is as they're walking into the building where they find this person who is basically frozen in a state of barely surviving, of just suffering the, 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 the pains of the condemned, uh, we see the, the name of the building is Giant, which is a direct reference mm. to the giants in the Inferno that served as the gatekeepers into that, that area with the frozen lake. And it's just one more great little detail that on the surface, you're not going to question it. But subtly, you're picking up on all these threads that kind of tie together <laughs> to be this complex, beautiful tapestry of an allegory about this political dynamic. It's not just spiritual. It's not about religion. This isn't about a story about religion. This is using religion to talk about political power dynamics and what the relationship between church and state. Um, and then on top of that, the, the, not only is this, uh, you know, Dante and Virgil in an odyssey through the nine layers of hell, um, excuse me, through the nine rings of hell, um, there, there's also this extra layer. So Dante Alighieri was married uh, through an arranged marriage, but he was in love. He fell in love with this uh, young woman named Beatrice. And in the story of uh of the inferno or in, in the divine comedy it was beatrice who is hailed as this muse as this as this angel it's interesting you said angel like in in the divine comedy beatrice is literally an angel who goes to virgil and says you need to help dante through this rite of passage through this um uh through this crucible of hell like literally of hell and um, I think Tracy, uh, the character Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, is the prototype for Beatrice. Um, and, you know, it's just those little things of like uh, subtly referencing Beatrice, Tracy, it kind of taking a little bit of the aesthetic, but also she plays the role. We see the scene where Mills and Somerset in their, are in the office and Mills gets his first phone call. And then his wife says, let me talk to Somerset. And they have some sort of conversation and she invites him over for dinner. It's because of Tracy that Somerset connects with Mills for the first time and and then we actually get the story underway. Before that, Mills was kind of wandering through the forest lost in a sea of all of these clues that weren't making sense to him. Now in in um in the Divine Comedy in the Inferno, that's exactly what happens. Dante's lost in the woods, he sees some strange animals and then Virgil appears to him as a spirit and says I've been sent to help you. And then he starts to guide him through the different rings of hell. Um, and and he, we later learned that it was Beatrice that commissioned him, that sent him to guide Dante through these rings of hell. Um, so what's interesting is um, the Inferno isn't just, you know, it's not religious propaganda. It, it, it's often later referred to as religious propaganda because, you know, it, it's so graphic with a, the way it depicts hell. But the truth of it is, is that it, this was uh, 
This was Dante trying to respond to a volatile political ethos that was the Holy Roman Empire. Um, he was what was called a, a, a Guelph, uh, Guelph Bianchi, a, a white Guelph. Now, the black Guelphs were this uh, political group that supported the, the papacy, the Roman papacy. And they supported this thing called simony, which is where you could, it was kind of like sale of indulgences. You could pay the church uh, and then you would be forgiven of your sins. And, um, and this was something that, that Dante was strongly against. What we were seeing was that the, the Roman influence was taking over all the principalities uh, through all of Florence and all the Italian principalities and then spreading across the entire uh, Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. And the main thing that Dante was advocating was a separation between the religiosity and the governmental rule or what we would call a separation of church and state because he was seeing that the uh, that the religion that the, the pope was using nepotism was using corruption was using extortion as a means to rule the people and they were and they were using religion as a way to exploit them so uh, once dante uh he was he was uh tried while he was out of florence um and then told that he was uh uh, going to be burnt at the stake if he returned to Florence. So he was exiled after that. And from that moment on, started spent the next 10 years writing the Divine Comedy. And from there, he started writing the popes and different religious leaders into the Divine, into the Inferno as a way of saying, these people are in the darkest, hottest, most brutal parts of hell. And this was Dante's way of saying, it, it's not just uh, trying to articulate Catholic belief. Um, or the, any kind of religious belief. He was trying to use kind of tribal narratives to emphasize how brutal and how corrupt these political leaders were and that they're using religion and faith as a pretext to, to garner this kind of submission. Um, so what I, th what I think is interesting is, is uh, it, it begs the question, this was 1995. Um, if this story is, if Seven really is a modern retelling of Dante's Inferno in a neo-noir context, what is Fincher? What is uh, Andrew Kevin Walker? What are they trying to say about the nature of the culture that they're in? Are, are they using this as an allegory? Now, if we look at 1995, this was um, Clinton had been president for about three years, which means 1995, September was right before the elections. Um, and uh, so Clinton was going to be running again, um, and it would be his second term. And one thing that was going on at the time, a huge piece of the argument, uh, was this, this rise of the Christian right or the religious right. And one of the things that, were, that a lot of people were um, arguing about is, you know, is this idea of like, well, should churches be able to talk, give sermons that are endorsing certain political leaders? Because that, that breaks with the tradition of like, you're supposed to lose your, your certification of 501c3 if you, if you are endorsing political leaders, because then you become a political organization, not just a religious organization. Um, so in, you know, in the 90s, that was, uh, you know, I was a kid at the time. So I was, you know, I was, I've always been interested in politics, but I was still pretty, pretty ignorant. Or some would say that I still am. But, um, but what we were seeing is this, this argument, this kind of dialectic going on between what is the role of religion in politics? And I think seven 
is a powerful way of uh, invoking that same metaphor of the inferno as a political allegory. Uh, and the thing that Dante was advocating is we need to separate religiosity and the nepotism and the corruption of this kind of eternal power dynamic, separate that from the political, um, the political dynamics that were, that are ruling our lives. And th- again, this is also during the time where, um, there, there was a lot of religious fervor. There was a lot of schisms going on, lots of power dynamics and a lot of corruption within, uh, both, uh, churches as well as, or within the church dynamic, as well as the political dynamics. Um, popes and emperors were constantly changing seats. Um, which is something that's almost well something that's really difficult to imagine now so when you look at it from this the simple narrative of if mills represents dante and somerset represents virgil then what they're saying ultimately as an allegory is that um, dante becomes a kind of tool of the state and this one way to look at this is that you know this john doe character represents this kind of radical um religiosity that is trying to preach is trying to punish people and this could be seen as kind of like um, fincher's way of of articulating like the the brutality and the the um the extremism of religiosity is going to force the state to become the monsters to become the tool of the monsters and that's what i think is is a fascinating conversation it's uh, i don't know if i totally agree with it but it's a it's a it's a fascinating comment that dante is the moral arbiter and therefore mills is the wrath of god and that's what john doe tricked him into doing wow jeez um, so that's that's <laughs> kind of my that's kind of my takeaway that's um what do you think? Did I go down the rabbit hole? Did I go too far? Or, and again, I'm not saying I, I agree with, I believe, or anything. I think this is the conversation that Fincher and Walker are wanting to have with their audience. This is why they're making these references. What do you think? I I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I really enjoy that presentation because I love the use of the mythology. You know, I, uh, who was it that uh, George Lucas was saying that the um, the generation of the time will define the mythology of the time? And, you know, Fincher using film noir to to have these discussions is very interesting. It's you know what? Sorry, obviously... can I interrupt you real quick? Um, that, you just yeah. brought up a really good point. So when Dante was exiled, he deliberately started writing literature in Italian. Now, at that time, they were only great literature was only written in Latin. And part of the reason was, was because the, the, the average person was not educated enough to read in Latin. So it was part of the way to make sure that the, that the educated people were, um, were only the elites. It was kind of a way of controlling the narrative. And Alighieri was saying, no, I'm going to write this in conventional street language. The common Italian will be able to read this. And be able to, it's going to scare the shit out of him. And also, he's going to have a more powerful impact on the average person. I think him writing in Italian is the same as Fincher and Walker telling Dante's Inferno a political allegory in a neo-noir. The neo-noir is the language of entertainment. 
It's the language of yeah. the common man. Absolutely. It's also something we've been conditioned to kind of um, accept without being terribly critical because mm. it's a very dark, it's, it's a dark genre anyways. I mean, we have the, we, we have the different, um, you know, for instance, Tracy being the, um, the femme atrope and the, and the, um, uh, kind of a, as a, as a tool with, within the film noir. Um, we have little things like that that kind of throw back to what I love is also the fact that they never, and, and you know that this is an allegory because of this, but they never say, ah, New York City or, yeah. ah, Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, she loves me, but she's a bitter lover. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's, it's always just, you know, it's just the city. You know, they don't, they don't make these, uh, they don't kind of uh, uh, make these specifics because you need to be in almost a dreamlike state. And, it's, and what they're saying right there is it's not important. What's important is that it's a dark place. It's a difficult place to live yeah. in. It's a difficult place for this angel to come and, uh, you know, basically clip her wings in order to, to have her stay there. Yeah. Once you kind of start peeling away these little layers, um, it becomes, uh, there's actually, ab actually what feels like a greater depth to them because it goes back 700 years to the story that they were telling 700 years ago yeah i just i love it and i yeah, it's, this, it's the so same impressed. conflict we're, we're still dealing with the same the same conflicts just using different terminology absolutely it's human nature i mean we're that's that's where we don't really i mean <laughs> we're complex beings but for some reason we we're kind of stuck in that loop <laughs> you know there we we've been dealing with the same stuff for the last you know, thousand years. I still want to believe, I actually think, you know, yeah, I, I want to believe that we are actually progressing toward more civilization. We are, we're much better off than we were. Anyway, that's, that's a digression. Um, let's, let's jump into shut your plot hole, shall we? Shut your plot hole. Uh, now shut your plot hole is where we transition from analysis, uh, trying to understand what the the filmmakers, the the screenwriter, and the directors were going for, um, and kind of transitioning into uh, criticism, a critical side. And criticism just means to draw into crisis. It's it's where you take something and try and evaluate: uh, are there weaknesses? Or how could this be stronger? Now we are engaging great art. We, you know, Seven is a powerful, incredibly visceral, effective movie. It's why years later it's still many people's favorite movie. Um, and it's really well done. Um, that said, I, you know, as filmmakers, we don't, as writers, we don't want to just accept it as great. Uh, we want to ask ourselves, like critically evaluate it and ask, uh, what could we learn from this? And are there things that are weaknesses? Are there plot holes? Um, and just do our best effort. Uh, when I was at CalArts, uh, Mark Andrews, uh, one of the screenwriters for John Carter, one of the uh, Pixar greats, fantastic director, just brilliant brilliant guy um he gave this lecture when he was talking about like learning from good movies and bad movies he said when you watch a movie that just doesn't work like it's it's easy to dismiss it and just say like well it's just a piece of shit if any movie gets done any movie and i mean like any movie is accomplished it's a miracle um and 
if it's successful, it's even that much more of a miracle. So as artists, as filmmakers, uh, what he recommended was when you watch a movie and it's not working for you, don't just dismiss it. Take the time to evaluate what doesn't work and see what you would do differently. If you were handed that script today, how would you give it a rewrite that would plus it? Um, which is dangerous territory. It's a really, it's, it, it's very easy to get into the weeds and then you start to see, you know, that's why development hell is called development hell. It's the inferno of creativity. Uh, you, it's very easy to get lost uh, when you start imposing your themes on somebody else's story. So you gotta put the effort in to try and identify their themes. Anyway, so that's what Shut Your Plot Hole is. It's, a, it's an earnest attempt to actually look critically at great work. Um, now, uh, I, I came up with just a few, um, I don't know so much if they are plot holes as much as they are just kind of general criticism. This is a great movie. It, 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 follows, uh, it follows a very unconventional structure, um, and yet you're emotionally engaged the whole way through. And a lot of that is because of the, the incredible atmospherics, the incredible performances, the way it's shot is so beautiful. Um, but my, my first, the first thing I want to talk about is basically, uh, like we were talking about how one beat after another, it's kind of monotone. We don't have much of an emotional story. The best, the closest thing we have to an emotional story is when Gwyneth Paltrow uh, when Tracy, her, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, approaches Somerset and says, I'm pregnant, but I don't know if I want to keep it. I don't want to raise a baby in this world, this world, hell, inferno. And that's probably like the closest we have to just kind of a, a drop, this kind of emotional drop. Um, but Somerset is kind of a malaise, like he just has this kind of somber melancholy. Um, and because of that, every single scene there's not a huge emotional arc. We're now now part of the tradition of noir, um, and a lot of the a lot of the old kind of hard boiled stories are characters who kind of kept everything inside. You know, it was it was part of that old World War II ethic of just you know you, you got to get through shit and you got to just deal with it. Um, and you kind of handle it. And that's that's why you have a lot of these stories that are all about, you know, being cool under pressure. You got Humphrey Bogart, who is fucking cool as hell. And barely, he always just kind of cracks a grin at the face of death. Um, so there's, there's a part of that is honoring the tropes of the genre that they're working with. Um, but I do think that there are ways that you could actually have powerful emotional ups and downs and still honor that, um, that noir trope. Um, I mean, No Country for Old Men is a really great example of having that emotional up and down. Llewellyn Moss and Ed Tom Bell True. and even Anton Chigurh has some really intense highs, ups and downs or intense highs and intense mm -hmm. lows. Um, so that that's something that I, I if I were to be given a, a version of this um, and told to rewrite it, I would the first thing I would identify is it has kind of a flat emotional line until the very end. It just drops off the cliff. Now, part of that maybe contributes the fact that it is kind of a flat emotional line until the end where it drops off the cliff is like it is it is the effect that they want to get. You, you got something? Well, you know, it just reminded me of uh, Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, you know, the scene where they're riding around in the in the bicycle it's like i just throw in like a you know raindrops keep falling on my head scene you know it's like 
just have Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow and what's <laughs> and, and uh, Morgan Freeman. They're just like you know, drain drops keep falling on my. You know, it's. Uh, I'm not gonna pay for the. I really want to see that. I okay. Uh, here you go. go. Da da da. Anyway, yeah. um, but no. Uh, yeah, no. I just think uh, I, I just was imagining what we would do to lighten the mood on this, and it just just got worse and worse in my That's head. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> um, okay. Another criticism I have is um, now with film noir. What we're seeing is a lot of on-the-nose discussion about philosophy. This is definitely a progenitor for True Detective, um, and part of as no, I yeah, love absolutely. the first season of True Detective. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely. That yeah. said, part of my criticism for that was there were lots of scenes where it's Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey expositing their philosophical worldviews. Yeah. Where it's like, <laughs> these are these are police officers. These are hardcore detectives. And they're sitting there talking about, you know, uh, like just fatalism and all this, like um, the futility <laughs> of the soul and meat puppets. And it's uh, the, the whole time I'm like, <laughs> I, I just don't, I, I don't see, you know, like they, they really went over the top with uh, Morgan Freeman's character, Somerset. Where they just keep on saying, oh, you know, we're so sick of you asking all these questions, Mr. Culture over there. And then like, hey, we got culture, boombox, click, pocketbook cannon. It's like, uh, it's just a little, it's just a little too like, I I get it because writers want to, writers have great ideas and they want to talk about philosophy and they also want to be hard boiled. The trick is, is to have it motivated and you know, you're literally having character. You're having scenes. That's why you didn't have to do any detective work when we we're identifying the unconscious drive, because you literally have Morgan Freeman saying, "I don't believe we're doing any good here. Like this is, you know, we're just collecting, we're just collecting artifacts for the dead." You know, and then uh, you have Brad Pitt saying, "Well, I, I don't agree with you because I'm, you know, I believe we're actually doing something. We're actually changing the world. And this is justice." And it's like, it's it's a little like uh, pageanty, a little telegraphing. Yeah, and then one one of my last plot yeah. holes, and this is I I think it's a legit plot hole that it's like it, it this is clearly uh, how did Somerset know the killer was going for seven sins and not the rings of hell because gluttony and greed they're also mm-hmm. the the suffering of the damned souls so if this is some sort of attrition or something like that. He knows that it, the theme is that there's the killer's got a theme. How did he know it was seven sins and not the nine? How did he know that it wasn't going to be seven more deaths, each one representing the different layers of hell and condemnation? He went straight to mm. there's going to be five more, seven sins. That's the theme. Put the movie title up. <laughs> is that a plot hole or am I just being too critical? I don't know if it's a plot hole necessarily. I mean, it's 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 a... I don't disagree with you, but however, as far as as uh, like commonly known tropes, the seven deadly sins is much more uh, commonly understood than, say, the rings of hell. Yeah, uh, the rings of hell are probably a little bit more obscure than 
You know, because everybody knows the seven deadly sins. We learn them in, I don't know, Sunday school or, or whatever. Uh, but Or catechism. But no, I... I uh, I, I don't think it's such a terrible thing that he would assume that it was seven deadly sins. And it's like, if he were to say, ah, oh, there's going to be five more. And then and then there's, oh, sorry, there's 11 more. You know, it's like. Well, See, if it, yeah. if it was up to me, I would have said, there's going to be at least five more. Maybe seven. Okay. <laughs> sure. But it's like, it's ah. almost like the, the, it's like that, you know, he read the screenplay and he knew there were going to be seven, you know. Right. Well, that says it right on the title page. Exactly. There's going to be seven more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so other than that, and then there's the question. So, and then this is probably my, my biggest question about the character arc is Somerset starts off saying, I feel like we're not doing any good here. I've lost faith, right? And he's lost mm-hmm. faith in his job, and he's lost faith that he's actually making a difference. And then he meets this kid who's uh, rambunctious and wants to prove something, and he believes in the system, and he's got this sweet, wonderful wife, and he's like, I want to believe again. And then she gets her head cut off, and he murders, and is going to go away forever. How does that get Somerset to say, you know what, I'm going to stick around? How is that the thing that says, you know what, we are doing some good here. Why? Now, let me point out that uh, in in the Inferno, uh, Virgil uh, is in Limbo. Uh, now, Limbo is a part, it's, it's the first ring of hell. And all the philosophers, all the people who are basically good people that did great things in history, but did not accept the, the gospel of Jesus or the salvation of Jesus Christ, they're going to be stuck in limbo, which means they're not really suffering. They're just kind of hanging out in the rocks talking philosophy. And mm. Virgil, once he gets him, once he gets Dante through the nine layers of hell, ends up having to return to limbo with all the other great philosophers. So in the allegorical sense, Somerset saying, I'm going to be around, makes sense allegorically. But, our, but as far as the character arc... Why the fuck would he stay around? How how does that change the way he sees uh, the world? If anything, he would be even more embittered. Even more, like literally, this sweet young couple gets their lives wrecked, and then on top of that, he didn't actually kill the killer, or he didn't catch the killer. The killer gave himself up. All of his detective work, the only good detective work he did was under the was by breaking the law. So now he's he's a corrupt cop. Who's exploiting a, you know, and, and I love the idea that, you know, like, uh, we're going to be watching the libraries for really dangerous serial killers. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's kind of like, oh, my God, we've got a we've got a slaughterhouse. We don't know who did it. Quick, go to the library. <laughs> go to the libraries. Quick, Robin. <laughs> Quick, Robin, to, to the, the library. library. We'll find the penguin there. Yeah. <laughs> Like Robin's running the opposite direction. He's, oh, oh the library. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to the Batmobile, right? No, the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so, yeah, do you have a good answer for that? Why, why would Somerset no. say I'm going to stick around after that? No, to be honest, it, it, other than the, fa- the fact that it kind of puts a button on the end of the story, it's like, 
Um, I was going to leave, and now I, I'm I not. I was going to leave, and now I'm not going to do it, guys. You want to... I don't know. The truth is I don't, I don't have an answer for that because, um, you know, if I experience just that final scene... Mm-hmm. I'm heading to Bermuda. I'm I'm going to the Bahamas. Right. I am never looking at. Pol- I'm I'm never. I'm not going to even keep my police badge as a memento. I am out of there. Yeah. So I have no idea. So you know, I I can't I can't defend his choices that don't seem terribly rational to me. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. said, I love the movie. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It's so beautifully shot. It's uh, Fincher is amazing at put you putting you in the moment, making you feel the horror, the dread, the disgust. Um, yeah, it's it's just a great movie. It's a great yeah. movie. This this is one of the movies that um, I, there, there's there's a few movies that I have a really difficult time experiencing, and this is one of those films. The, the difficulty of because it is a visceral experience it really is a visceral experience and and going through these painful difficult um, literally trudging through hell um, it's one of those movies that yes I can I can acknowledge its artistry its craft it's beautiful it's beautifully written it's beautifully shot it's beautifully acted Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are are you know at the top of their game on all pistons but my it's so painful for me to watch that that literally if i didn't have to do this podcast i probably wouldn't watch that movie again i mean that's just the reality i mean there's a few i mean hotel rwanda is another one of those films where it's like oh i don't and sophie's choice you know it's like these movies that are just they just rip your heart out and then give you the finger afterwards because it's like, yeah. yeah, this happened and now you experienced it too. And it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, you know, it is an incredible film and definitely a movie I, I probably never watch again. <laughs> that's the perfect button. Yeah. We'll, we'll end it right here. Yeah, there you go. All right, that's that's our vivisection for seven. David Fincher, Andrew Kevin Walker, amazing pairing, amazing team. You want a vivisection. It's funny because I, I will say things and then two minutes later I'm saying the same thing all over again. And uh, Next week's movie is going to be Miller's Crossing. It's the Coen Brothers. We're doing another Woo-hoo. Coen Brothers movie. I'm obsessed with them. What do you want? They're some of the greatest huh. filmmakers. All right. Thanks so much for watching. Uh, be sure to go to storykinetics.com. Uh, you can uh, submit your questions to the Ask Hole uh, under the podcast page. Um, also be sure to subscribe both to, uh, storykinetics.com as well as, uh, subscribe and click the bell on YouTube and, uh, be sure to join the conversation at the Facebook group, the art of story. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Todd. This was a really good conversation. I really liked it. I had a great time, Adam. Thank you. Cool. All right. We'll see you next time. Have a great week. It's 